Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 19 of season four. This is kind of a long season. It's going to go through the summer, and then I'll be taking a break in case you're wondering how long is season four going to last. So you'll have quite a few more episodes to listen to at your leisure as the summer continues. Um, I'm saying as the summer continues because it feels like summer now. We've hit Memorial Day and now my kids are almost out of school. And um, I think it's officially summer for the US uh, and probably most of the Northern Hemisphere. So friends, today I have a really cool conversation for you. Let me first ask for your support in a number of ways, which if you listen to this podcast all the time, you already know everything I'm going to say. So first of all, thank you for listening. And next, go out and do these things. One of the things, if you haven't already done it, is to follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use to listen to the show. And then next, rate and review it, um, especially on Apple Podcasts. This really gets the show out in front of people who enjoy similar shows and might enjoy this and might love historical fiction and just really um, benefit from our show. Next, if you're enjoying the show and you would like to talk about the show with other listeners, join our Facebook group. It's called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You can search for it or you can find it in the show notes. And then you can also follow us on Instagram. We have, we post there weekly at least, and you can get to the show that way and discuss it on Instagram. And the final way to support our show is by supporting me, Allison Treat, at patreon.com. So to get there, you go to patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Allison's with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. So um, if you support us on Patreon, you can get a number of benefits. One of them at a certain level, you can get a, a monthly video of reviews of books that I've been reading, and they're often reviews of books that we talk about on this show. So definitely go to patreon.com slash Treat, or you can follow the link in the show notes and check out the different levels and see if you'd be willing to support us in any way via Patreon. Now today, my friends, I have a fascinating conversation with you. It's quite different from a lot of the other conversations I share with you on the show. So this conversation is with author James A. Ross. He has at various times been a Peace Corps volunteer in the Congo, a congressional staffer and a Wall Street lawyer. His debut novel, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, won the Independent Press Distinguished Favorite Award for Historical Fiction, was shortlisted for a Goethe Historical Fiction Award, and is a finalist for the National Indie Excellence Award for Historical Fiction. His short fiction has appeared in numerous literary journals, and one of his short stories was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I talked to Jim back in November, and I think you guys are really going to love this conversation. Jim, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. I'm glad you invited me. Yeah, um, you've written a number of short stories, and you've also written a contemporary thriller. But today we're talking about your historical novel, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt. This book has won a number of awards. Can you tell me about the story? Um, yes, it, it, uh, it came about, uh, well, the, the, the story itself is basically about a, an attempted assassination of Teddy Roosevelt while he was on safari in Africa 
1909. Uh, Roosevelt had uh, decided uh, to follow George Washington's example and not run for a third consecutive term, underline mm-hmm. the word consecutive. Uh, and uh, But perhaps, um, although he didn't say so, intended to come back and run again for president in 1912, uh, having you know, uh, uh, vacated the seat for, for four years. And um, as it turns out, uh, there was an attempt on his life while he was uh, in Africa on safari. And uh, my book, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, is basically a, um, answering two questions. Um, you know, one, who would do such a thing uh, to a, you know, an ex-president at that point uh, right. who uh, is heading off to a part of the world that might kill him anyway, and <sighs> um, who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a political has-been since he voluntarily uh, vacated the, uh, you know, the presidency. And secondly, why isn't it in the history books? Uh, which is an even more fascinating question. Right. So you um, tell me about what inspired this, because I know that you discovered something that told you this was an yeah. actual thing that well, happened. Yeah, it, it came about in a very curious way. I was uh, uh, in the office of my then agent uh, about to sign a contract for uh, my first uh, murder mystery book. And this was nine, uh, 2009, so mm-hmm. um, you know, right after the crash. And you know, the publishing industry is in disarray, and mm-hmm. the publisher backed out at the last minute. So mm-hmm. uh, my, my agent sat me down. He's an uh, elderly gentleman, reminded me of Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter series, <laughs> as did his office, which was in two pushed-together brownstones in lower Manhattan with oh, wow. wall-to-ceiling books and a fireplace big enough to roast a rhinoceros. <laughs> and um, he said, look, Jim, if you were a Kennedy or a New York ball player, I could probably still find a home for this. But, uh, you know, the industry is a mess right now, so why don't we just start working on your next book? So um, he had himself written a book about uh, commercial, uh, uh, successfully, you know, successful commercial books. Um it was called uh, Writing the Best Seller. Uh, and he had a formula, which he insisted that his, uh, at, at least young authors like myself, he insisted that we follow, which was um, uh, larger-than-life character, exotic locale, uh, mm. global stakes, and a few other things I, I forget because I didn't follow it precisely. But as we're kicking around ideas, uh, I immediately seized on Africa as the exotic locale. I had spent some time there as a young man, first with the Peace Corps in the Congo, and then Mm -hmm. with CBS News. And I'd always wanted to set a book there. And larger-than-life characters, uh, I had met some of the larger-than-life characters of the mid-1970s, Idi Amin, General Mobutu, et al. And, you know, uh, but I global stakes, nobody's really that interested in modern African politics there it's it's regional not global except that you know the superpowers occasionally meet and clash there so we're kicking it around and um yeah i I, we didn't get anywhere that first session but as i'm doing some research on larger than life characters in africa i ran across teddy roosevelt's safari book 
called African Game Trails. And it's utterly fascinating. You know, I don't mm. know how many of your readers uh, uh, are hunters or you know care about safaris and such, but it's probably the best safari book ever written. And Rosabo yeah. could really write. So check that box. I got exotic locale, larger than life character, Teddy Roosevelt. How can I set a story with global stakes in 1909 Africa uh, on Teddy Roosevelt's safari, um, yada, yada, yada. So that, <laughs> I, you know, that's, uh, that was a challenge. And as I'm doing Google research, I got lucky. I mean, incredibly lucky. I ran across a little blurb in a 1909 Italian newspaper, which reported that the Naples police had taken an anarchist uh, off the ship carrying Roosevelt to Africa when it docked in Naples and charged him with trying to murder Roosevelt by stabbing him with a knife. And, um, you know, I've got a decent high school education and I, you know, I, I think I'm reasonably familiar with the known assassination attempts of uh, American right. presidents. I mean, yeah. there have been far too many, but they can still count them on one hand. And I never heard of that one. So, uh, you know, I try to find confirmation in other papers and there's just nothing there. Uh, certainly nothing in English. I did ultimately find two other articles in Italian newspapers, mostly repeating the, the Naples article. But there's wow. absolutely nothing in English, not in the contemporary newspapers, not in the history books, not in the Roosevelt biographies, nada, nothing, nowhere. Now, hmm. so you got two intriguing questions and my book, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt is a attempt to answer them. First, who had the power back in 1909 to suppress that kind of news? Uh, and why would they do it? And secondly, you know, who would you know, who would make an attempt on Roosevelt's life? Not while he was in office and busting everybody's chops with his trust busting and, you know, anti-business um, uh, mm -hmm. programs, but after he's out of office, why do that? Well, the answers that I came up with through my research and then turned into a fictional story were um, the, 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 the person most likely to have suppressed the newspaper story and who had the power to do so uh, was William Randolph Hearst. He was the Ruder, Ruder, Rupert Murdoch of his time. He mm -hmm. basically controlled all the major U.S. and European English language newspapers. Hmm. And he, he had that kind of pull. And his rationale, I think, was pretty straightforward. He wanted to run himself for president in 1912. And he was not give Roosevelt a, you know, a line of ink that would make him any more popular than he already was. Instead, if you go back and read his newspapers and their accounts of the Roosevelt safari, it makes Roosevelt look like this animal slaughtering buffoon. And that mm -hmm. was the pretty consistent theme. Mm -hmm. Okay, so check that box. William Randolph Hearst suppressed the story because he wanted to run for president himself in the next election. Teddy Roosevelt uh, wasn't going to get any help from his newspapers. It's certainly for nothing as sympathetic as an assassination attempt. But the other question, you know, who tried to, who would actually try to kill him and why? Uh, I settled on uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, and I think there's an awful lot of evidence that points in that direction. Uh, although I can't prove it, which is why this is fiction instead of nonfiction. Um, uh, but basically, 
Morgan and Rockefeller uh, had literally purchased the Republican convention of 1900 that nominated William McKinley. I mean, buying votes back then at conventions, it was pretty standard fare, and it wasn't mm. the first time it had happened, but they succeeded in uh, putting McKinley into the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, um, six months after he got there, he was assassinated. Right. And, uh, you know, McKinley was pro-business. Roosevelt was from the opposite end of the party and was only on the ticket because McKinley was doing a favor to uh, the New York Tammany Hall to get this firebrand progressive out of New York and out of their hair. You know, it would mm -hmm. be sort of like the last election. You know, if you if you had bought the Democratic convention and put Biden in, but instead mm -hmm. got, you know, Ocasio-Cortez six months later, <laughs> you're going to get a oh, completely boy. different eight years. And yeah. that's exactly what happened to Morgan et al. on Wall Street. They had this Ocasio-Cortez kind of figure in Roosevelt who, you know, accidentally became president, but nevertheless, for the next seven and a half year, years, followed his anti-business trust-busting program and made their lives miserable. He does mm -hmm. him a favor by going off to Africa, you know, following George Washington's example of not running for a third consecutive term. But they knew what consecutive meant. He's coming back. And my theory is uh, they uh, decided to uh, make sure he met with some kind of unfortunate event while he was, you know, in a part of the world where it wasn't going to get reported. And, um, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and poor Roosevelt, uh, you know, he got gored by a line or caught dysentery or malaria or whatever. And sadly, he didn't, you know, he won't be coming back to run again in 1912. And basically, my book, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, tells that story about uh, uh, an assassin planted on the safari to make sure that Teddy Roosevelt does not come back. Uh, and run for president in 1912. And then the global stakes are, are simply that um, in, Ro in Africa, uh, Roosevelt discovered what were obviously German preparations for war, you know, what uh, led to ultimately to World War I. And my thesis, which I explore in the book, is that had Roosevelt won in 1912, he probably could have stopped World War I from happening. Uh, the uh, Wilson didn't have that kind of stature. Uh, the uh, European powers, uh, you know, if the United States in the, it, it, with Roosevelt as president had said to Germany in 1910, um, you know, if you go to war with France and England, the U.S. will be coming in immediately on their side. So you got zero chance of uh, succeeding. Uh, that probably would have stopped the Kaiser in his tracks. And Roosevelt, mm. was, uh, in his published works, uh, gave every indication that you know he saw war coming and he would uh, uh, do what he, he thought best to prevent it from happening. But he didn't win in 1912. There was another assassination attempt. Um, and uh, uh Roosevelt came back. He ran uh, as a third-party candidate, split the Republican ticket with Taft, and mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson squeaked through uh, in a very close election. Uh, so, uh, you know, World War One did happen, uh, but that's basically my thesis. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me because um, I haven't I haven't done a lot of research on these figures in in the beginning of the book you have um 
JP Morgan meeting with Andrew Carnegie and, mm-hmm. um, well, uh, is it William? William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Hearst. Um, and I don't know much about what they were like personally. So apparently you, you believe that JP Morgan was the kind of person who would actually have tried to arrange for Roosevelt's assassination. Yes. Um, yeah. So how did you go about doing the kind of research that led you to that conclusion? I know you've kind of touched on it, but tell me where you got all this information. Um, obviously, there's no written uh, record of uh, J.P. Morgan having ordered anybody killed. Right. But there right. is plenty of um, historical uh, record surrounding the violence that was orchestrated and paid mm-hmm. for by people like Morgan and Carnegie and the other, uh, you know, so-called robber barons of their era. Right, right. Um, used against the nascent labor movement uh, when uh, that when the Wobblies, which were the uh, uh, the first uh, organized uh, labor movement, as time try to organize. Uh, the uh, Carnegie steel, steel mills, uh, mm-hmm. Carnegie and, and Morgan, his financial backer, uh, hired the Pinkertons to mm-hmm. meet the uh, union organizers in the union protest uh, with uh, violence. And they shot and killed uh, any number of labor protesters mm-hmm. during the period right before uh, this book takes place. So, um, there, there's plenty of historical record that uh, these men, uh, Morgan, uh, Carnegie, Harriman, et al., uh, were perfectly comfortable in hiring thugs to meet mm. uh, with violence, including death, uh, folks who disrupted their economic interests. So it's, um, it's not that they were squeamish about killing people or <laughs> right. you know, sending um, you know, thugs to... Um, you know, do what uh, was necessary to end the threat to their businesses. So it's not a far cry from that to um, think that uh, they would take it uh, as far as, uh, you know, killing a presidential candidate. Uh, they'd certainly bought and paid for one, and they didn't get what they bought and paid for. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just don't see these guys as backing off anywhere in what right. they, uh, that what they would do to uh, protect their economic interests. Certainly the historical record uh, points in that direction. Right. So since you have so many um, characters in the book who were actual historical figures, like people Mm -hmm. that existed in reality, Mm -hmm. how did you, as you wrote the story, how did you walk that line between fiction and nonfiction as you wrote about them? Uh, I think you have to be consistent with character in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of uh, Carnegie, he left a lot of writing. And also he he did an abrupt about turn uh, in terms of um, his, his ethics, if you will, once mm-hmm. he got out of the steel business. He was rapacious and violent while he, um, while he was the biggest – uh, uh, capitalist of his generation, but right. he ultimately sold out to Morgan. He sold um, 
what became U.S. Steel, and actually the you know historical footnote, the purchase price for U.S. Steel, which J.P. Morgan came up with in cash, was bigger than the U.S. budget for that oh year. Oh my goodness! Wow! So in today's dollars, we're talking trillions. You know, yeah. J.P. Morgan cut him a check. So that's how wealthy these guys were. You know, this is before right. income tax and uh, in the post-Civil War era in the U.S., if you managed to achieve a monopoly in something like railroads, steel, or the other basic commodities, mm-hmm. you were 10 times richer than the, you know, the Jeff Bezos's and, and uh, uh, Bill Gates of this world. I mean, the, right. these, the modern billionaires are pikers compared to J.P. Morgan and, and Rockefeller. Um, mm-hmm. So in doing, you know, but um, Carnegie, uh, once he sold out to Morgan, took a abrupt right hand turn and became basically the planet's biggest philanthropist. Not just then, mm-hmm. but even today, if you turn on a PBS station or whatever, it's yeah. underwritten by the Carnegie Foundation. Uh, right. I, you know, I grew up in a um, in an area where every little town had a Carnegie library, you know, uh, mm. you know, they're usually, you know, brownstone, at least on the East coast. But if you, yeah. you know, if you crisscross the U S on some of the old routes, like route 66, uh, every little town has a Carnegie library. Um, mm. you know, he spent the rest of his life, uh, spending on philanthropic, uh, projects, the fortune that he made creating us steel and selling it to JP Morgan. I think he was trying to make up for you know, uh, his uh, violent, misspent youth, but he certainly mm. did an abrupt about face and That's spent the rest of his life doing good. So I, I hope I reflect that in the brief conversations he has with Morgan. Um, yeah, I um, I definitely saw that in in that scene toward the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's the one who was interested in world peace and. Mm-hmm not not curious about what um Pierpont wanted to do or disapproving more well I, I i while i made it up i you know based on my research it's um you know it's there in the historical record that the roosevelt safari was in fact underwritten by carnegie and jp morgan i mean through the smithsonian institution they provided the funds that uh assembled the largest safari uh, ever undertaken and the largest one since uh, mm. Stanley found Livingston. You know, why would they do such a thing? Especially since they didn't have a common interest at that point. And I think, right. you know, Carnegie, what I have Carnegie saying in that scene is, is, is true. Uh, we know that he was in touch with Roosevelt. We know that um, he did want Roosevelt to meet with the Kaiser and he was concerned about, uh, war coming to Europe, uh, and Morgan's uh, reasons for you know getting Roosevelt uh, you know out of the U.S. and and into Africa are more conjecture. I don't have any written um, uh, record that that uh, points in that direction, but I think it's um, yeah it, it, it's a tenable thesis from the facts that you know Morgan would be happy to cut a check that would get Roosevelt out of Dodge for four years. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the his and Carnegie's interests came together in sending Roosevelt on safari. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. So I do want to shift 
the conversation a little bit um, <clears throat> away from this particular book. And you mentioned that you your deal with a publisher in 2009 fell through. Mm-hmm. Um, so how? tell me a little bit about how your writing career has eventually come to releasing this book, and then you have some thrillers out mm-hmm. as well. Um, tell me how you went from that that failed contract to where you are now. Well, my failure actually lasted quite a long time. It wasn't just that uh, deal. I wrote my first book Mm -hmm. when I was in college, uh, but I didn't get my first one published until the same year I started collecting Social Security. So Mm -hmm. it was a very, very long apprenticeship. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had many um, uh, episodes during the intervening years where I came close to getting a book published and uh, only Mm -hmm. to have it fall through. Uh, but oh, I, I, I did publish many short stories during uh, those decades. But right. the, you know, the debut novel eluded me for quite some time, um, and uh, you know, some of it was uh, the economics of the moment. Uh, you know, prior to the the scene I've just described, where uh, a publisher backed out at the last minute on my. Uh, what later became my debut murder mystery. Uh, I had a two book deal going with random house about three years before that. And mm. uh, again, that fell through. And I think, wow. you know, my message to any of your listeners who uh, are writers is, um, you know, we make a mistake as writers in thinking that when we write the end at the end of the manuscript, we're done with it. it's the finish line. <laughs> And it's not the finish line. It's the starting line. And, you know, from there forward is a lot of sales and marketing and hustle and, you know, random events like, you know, the 2008 crash or whatever, uh, you know, can come along and just uh, Mm -hmm. uh, blow a hole in the most carefully uh, executed plan. Uh, So it's not a game for the impatient uh, or the faint of heart. Uh, But I think if you've got a product that um, uh, is compelling enough then uh, uh, and you're patient enough and you keep you know pushing, you'll eventually get there. Right. Yeah, how did you stay <laughs> I want to say how did you stay positive during those times when when the that debut novel eluded you? Well, what? I guess the short stories kept me going as much as anything else. Mm. Um, you know, I was uh, uh, practicing law for uh, most of those years. And uh, I had a commute from Connecticut into lower Manhattan that used probably every form of transportation, but an airplane door to door. So I, you know, I drive to the station, then get on the train, you know, from Connecticut into midtown Manhattan and then mm-hmm. take a, 20 stop suburb ride down to wall street and then walk across to my office, you know, spend 14 hours arguing with other lawyers about stuff that, you know, uh, is probably a waste of time for most people. Uh, and <laughs> then get, you know, back on the train and reverse the commute and get up the next day and do it again. So that, right. but there was one section of that commute, the train ride from Connecticut into grand central, uh, mm-hmm. that was an hour of quiet time at least yeah. before cell phones and, you know, when all the fights started breaking out and you had to tell people you'd take it away or shove it into their <laughs> you know, ear canal if they didn't 
quit yakking. Um, mm-hmm. But during that hour, I wrote and I wrote short stories. I, I wow. wrote, you know, um, full length books that some of which are, you know, found a deserved home in the bottom of a trunk and are never to be seen again. Uh, but I did write the first two books of the murder mystery s- series that's now coming out uh, on that train. And, um, you know, I knew it was, I was getting better, you know, I was selling mm-hmm. stories. And then as I uh, migrated from stories into longer works, you know, you have an internal sense of, um, you know, whether you're, you, you've hit the sweet spot or not. I think that's mm-hmm. true of, of all the arts. And uh, I knew what I was writing, um, you know, particularly as, as the years went on, it was getting better. The stories are getting published, and I had a high degree of confidence that the uh, the books would reach that standard at some point, and they'd be published too. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, so you're writing mysteries now, and do you see yourself writing historical fiction anymore, or do you feel like the thriller mystery path is more your speed? No, I I while I'm writing. Uh, mystery thrillers now um and i you know my day debut novel was historical fiction uh i think of them uh as all part of a uh, a common theme which is i'm interested in ideas mm. uh, i like I, I i use the vehicle of storytelling to scratch my own itch if you will uh, uh about things i'm interested in so mm-hmm. in the case of uh, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, you know, I may have started off, uh, you know, uh, as a result of a conversation with my then agent and trying to fit into his mold of what he thought a commercial bestseller would look like. But I don't think, you know, the book would have gotten published, much less won the, all the awards it did, uh, if it was simply a commercial potboiler. Um, I right. became fascinated by Teddy Roosevelt, as I was doing the research, fascinated mm-hmm. by the complexities of European and African geopolitics at the turn of the century, fascinated by the similarities between that time and ours, and the lessons to be learned from observing how characters like Roosevelt handled the challenges of their time, and um, and also fascinated by the father-son dynamic of uh, Roosevelt and Kermit. Um, mm-hmm. And um, when I moved to the uh, mystery thriller category, once again, I'm exploring uh, characters and ideas that uh, I'm interested in. And uh, while the vehicle is a whodunit, you know, there's a, there's detectives, a dead body, and you got to solve the crime. The real story for me as a writer in those books is the um, the personal, ethical, and uh, life dilemmas faced by the characters, similar to the ones faced by Roosevelt uh, on safari. You know, what kind of dad does he want to be? What kind of leader does he want to be? How can he make his mark in the world? Where has mm-hmm. he failed in the past? And where does he want to succeed in the future? And... Um, I do the same thing in my murder mysteries. I explore uh, big ideas through the voices of uh, very human people uh, and hope and, and satisfy my own 
desire to understand those kind of human dilemmas uh, better uh, uh, through the you know through writing about them. And uh, you know, to the extent there's a brand in writing, uh, and when you think of a mystery thriller like, uh, uh, say, Agatha Christie, mystery, mm-hmm. um, the brand there is the puzzle. You know, for mm-hmm. people who like right. puzzles, you go to Agatha Christie. Uh, in um, say the James Bond book, the brand there is action. You know, mm-hmm. people who want car chases and you know spies hanging by their fingertips off you know uh, crevasses. You go to right. James Bond. For my readers, uh, I you know, to the extent there's a Jim Ross brand, it's if you want to think deeply about. Um, issues common to um, all people and all times, but are the stuff of uh, our humanity. Go read a Jim Ross book. He he really uh, uh, tackles the the big themes with uh, hopefully a bit of originality, but across genres. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um. So I have a question I ask all my guests, and mm-hmm. I feel like you touched on it a little bit, but I'll ask it anyway, because I think that your your answer might be interesting. Um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I, I think if you don't know history, um, you're condemned to re- repeat mistakes of the past. I feel um, like somebody said that once. Uh, many That's people have pointed that my out. I attempted a but, joke, yeah. <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, two years ago, we were yeah. faced with a uh, administration that was um, imposing tariffs left and right as if that was a new idea. And I remember thinking at the time, has anybody told that guy about the Hoot Smalley Tariff Act and the depression that followed the collapse of world trade? And, you know, while the world today isn't the same as it was in the 1930s, it's chilling when uh, people in positions of responsibility uh, apparently uh, have no familiarity with the even recent history. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel similarly when I watch uh, presidential debates and primaries and so forth, uh, where people are slinging mud at each other and blaming the world's problems on some convenient scapegoat group. Um does anybody remember the nineteen again the nineteen thirties and what happened when uh, uh, you know a particularly powerful leader in Central Europe settled upon a, a scapegoat group as the source of all the p- troubles for his country? Wound up in mm-hmm. a world war. So um, you know, and now we're faced with the uh, emergence of China as a superpower in mm-hmm. um, Southeast Asia. Uh, Anybody out there understand the history of how uh, global powers or regional powers deal with the reality of a rising power in their in their region? Because uh, this this scene has been played out many times in history. It's right. clearly playing out again. I hope our guys have studied their history and know <laughs> that most of those. Uh, confrontations did not end well for right. the um, the dominant power versus the rising one. And, you know, if we're smart, we'll do everything we can to avoid um, 
you know, military confrontation. Uh, but I'm not at all confident that, you know, current crowd out there is that erudite or, or well-read. And um, <laughs> that troubles me. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jim, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, what is the best way for listeners to follow you? The best way is probably through my website, jamesrossauthor.com. Uh, mm-hmm. If you go there, you can have access to my books, uh, live performances, links to short stories, interviews, podcasts, and so forth. There's quite a bit of material there. But if you simply want to buy my book, our books, uh, the most direct route is you know, the online services like Amazon, Barnes, Barnes & Noble. If you type in you know, James A. Ross, author, or Hunting Teddy Roosevelt, or Cold War Revenge, um, any one of those should get you to me. Although, And I'll uh, link to those in the show notes too. Oh, that, that that's great. Um, but I'll, I'll just throw out one tidbit for, again, for any of your uh, listeners who are writers and are, you know, uh, diligently pursuing the next step after finishing the book, you know, the sales and marketing piece. When right. you go to those sites like Amazon or Barnes and Noble and type in a book name or an author's name, uh, you would think that the book or the author's books would pop up automatically. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, unless and until, uh, at least on Amazon, you get about 50 reviews. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if you type in the book name correctly or the author's name correctly, it doesn't show up at the top on the first um, page. It may be buried on page two or three. And what you get in the first you know, page is uh, Amazon-sponsored books or you know, folks who right. paid, paid for that position. Um, but it, when you get about 50 reviews, uh, your book will show up on the first page and you can find it. Right. And, um, so, any, for, so for any of your readers out there, I will just point out this. Uh, uh, Coldwater Revenge now has 49 reviews. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> if even one of you will uh, throw up a one star. And it doesn't even have to be a good review. It can be an awful review. Yeah. <laughs> but once you reach 50, you, you, you hit that first page. So if I've accomplished nothing else on this interview, if I can get even one bad review, oh, <laughs> revenge to get me to the 50 mark, everybody else will be able to find the book that much easier. Right. Shoot for the stars. Yep. Okay, well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jim. It's been a pleasure, Allison. Well, my friends, I am sure you enjoyed that conversation with James A. Ross. Now, as Jim mentioned, do go leave reviews of his books. But I do want to let you know that since November, when this was recorded, his book, Cold Water Revenge, is up to 68 reviews on Amazon. So he's up past the 50 mark, which is great. However, my novel, One Traveler, is sitting just at 45. So if just five of you could go and leave, preferably decent reviews of my book, then that would be fantastic. In all seriousness, authors really do depend on reviews of books, either on Amazon or Goodreads, um, to help boost their sales and bring attention to their novels. And it helps them so much. If you read a book by an author, then go leave a review. It just helps so much more than you realize. Let me remind you to check out the show notes 
to this episode at alisontreat.com slash blog. You can often find the show notes in the app where you listen to the show. Um, I know it's in Apple Podcasts, but some podcatchers don't include the show notes. So do visit my website and you'll be able to find them there for sure. And that will give you links to Jim's books and more information about James A. Ross. Now, my friends, as usual, I'm going to leave you with a quote, and this one appropriately comes from Andrew Carnegie. He said, people who are unable to motivate themselves must be content with mediocrity, no matter how impressive their other talents. So my friends, do not be content with mediocrity and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.